Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and I'm delighted to say joining me for this episode is my brother, Michael Sherlock. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> You're a long-time listener and even longer-time brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. I'm so thrilled to have you on. Uh, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Me and Michael have been discussing having him on the podcast for quite a while. And unfortunately, every time we think of a topic that we want to talk about, it's, it's usually like a 600-page book that we haven't quite aligned our readings of. So when one finishes... I'm like, oh, I have to reread it if we were going to talk about it. And I don't have time to read like a 600 to 800 page book for the podcast. So uh, we've we've gone with a slightly different topic to to bring you on. We're going to talk about a film. Yes, it's easier to to cover that time. (laughs) (laughs) And as I mentioned in a couple of the episodes, I'm being very honest that my scheduling was a little bit off. So Michael has very kindly come in. A little bit last minute when I'm inviting my friends, in this case, my family, but Michael is also my friend, (laughs) that I usually like to give them breathing space, a lot of time to prepare, pick something that they're super comfortable with. And instead, I've just landed Michael in the deep end. We were actually at a funeral and I turned to him and said, would you mind coming on an episode of the (laughs) podcast? So he has very kindly obliged to step in relatively last minute to do an episode. But I think it's, it's all in, in keeping with the, the kind of macabre appeal of, the, uh, of what we're going to talk about. Which... Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're going to be talking about the film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is a film Michael and I went to the cinema to see together and loved. Oh, one of the best movies that, like, all time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, re- it's, a- it's really up there for both of us. Uh, we really enjoyed it. And hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, In a good way. Good dark way. <laughs> yeah, I think the first thing to say is it's not necessarily a film that everyone will enjoy. It's certainly not P-rated, which is why Phoebe is not on this episode of the podcast. We tried, but uh, she was uh, unwilling. <laughs> yeah, we, we tried to convince her to watch it with us when we were preparing for this episode, but nothing doing. And that is because it is quite a violent film. It's got a lot of dark themes. It's got a lot of curse words. It has a lot of, you know, intense topics. And in, especially it's quite explicitly violent Uh, which is the kind of movie the Sherlock family watches, I guess. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and I think just to to highlight for this episode of the podcast, I know some of my listeners listen with their family or their little kids around. Obviously, we will not be replicating the curse words or the expletives in the film. The bits that we quote, we won't be quoting anything like that. But it is a film with a lot of dark themes and uh, there's discussion of rape and there's discussion of violence and, and murder and even suicide. So obviously, I just want to give a heads up that while we'll keep the the content of the language clean, the, the themes themselves will be quite dark. So it might necessarily be one to listen to with, with little kids in earshot. But I think maybe the first thing that we should do is just kind of set the background for why we want to talk about this film and why it's relevant for an episode of Risking Enchantment. And so to begin with, I want to talk a little bit about 
a genre of literature in particular called Southern Gothic, which is this strain of literature. It's from the American South and originates kind of around the early 1800s. I think I was sort of surprised when I looked it up to hear that the, the first big name in it was Edgar Allan Poe. I hadn't really considered him as part of that. But there's other famous writers in this uh, genre, William Faulkner, of course, Tennessee Williams, Carson McCullers, and Flannery O'Connor, our favourite. Absolutely. Rachel has introduced me to her and I've been devouring her books ever since. Yeah, I think you gave me her collection of letters for my birthday and then immediately borrowed it back off me Guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> so we both love Flannery O'Connor and she's going to be kind of the main perspective through which we're looking at this film. If it's not a genre that you know a lot about, it's kind of characterized by the presence of irrational or horrific transgressive thoughts and desires and impulses there's a kind of grotesque nature to it between the characters and the humor and there's this sort of kind of sense of being angst-ridden or alienated there's like a sense of not being integrated with the place that you're in in some ways very literally with um, uh, issues of race and things like that and in some ways it kind of boils down to the idea that you've got this idyllic pastoral agrarian community that rests on these sort of repressed historical realities of racism and slavery and patriarchy and just generally um, these sort of sinister, the sinister side to an, an isolated community. Interesting. Yeah. She actually does portray an awful lot of religion negatively in the sense mm. that the, the overzealous of the, the kind of the pastors and the, the prophets kind of, and mm. you can see that in her works, um, like the violent bear to way and, and even wise blood, uh, the, these kind of teams of unbound religious fanaticism yeah the bible belt element to it and yes. even in it's funny obviously this the the film is not a, a flannery o'connor work but one of the characters is called jason dixon which is kind of like a an obvious play on the, the mason dixon line and so you've got this this sense of of the overbearing bible belt and uh issues of like integration in terms of the the different communities there so yeah absolutely and you're right you've actually probably read more of Flannery's stories than me I haven't actually delved into her novels I've read some of her collections of short stories uh but yeah so you you've got maybe a, a deeper perspective on what she's saying about religion which again is a very unexpected perspective from that time from that era in that place Yes, I think, well, as you said once, um, like getting to read her letters, you really get to know her. I mean, I, I hadn't read as many of the letters. And so when I was reading the novels, I would have said that she was maybe antagonistic towards religion. Um, but then there's always that underhand of grace that, that kind of tries to redeem or this, this kind of unseen force from, from without trying to guide the, the characters onto the, the right path. And usually it's their, their struggling against the, the, the hand, their, their true nature, their true characters reflected at the, the last moment. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And yeah, she's all about those moments of transcendental grace that like in the midst of what's often quite brutal stories or unsettling, they're just, they're not, if you're looking for cozy, if you're looking for reassuring, don't read Flannery O'Connor. They're all very weird and unsettling. And I think one of the things that makes her so interesting as a writer in that time and place is the fact that she's Catholic. And so she's looking at this 
religiosity, which I think a lot of people of her demographic were seeing very positively because, you know, as a Protestant, seeing this sort of booming Protestant culture. But she was seeing it from a different perspective and seeing how it was in some ways, at least from her perspective, dislocated from its, you know, its foundational truth in the Catholic Church. And so how it's sort of spinning off, like you said, in these mad directions or with these sort of individual prophets speaking individual truths and, and refounding of their own churches. And uh, yeah, that that she sees the ways that religion isn't living up to its expectations. And I think the other thing that is really telling about her is is that as much as she is criticizing or seeing the problems of the religiosity of the age and place that she's in, the thing that is actually interesting is that in some ways she does see the positives of having a community that still recognizes that Christ has some part in that. And so she has this line, it's in her series of essays in the book Mysteries and Manners, where she says, I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centred, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The Southerner, who isn't convinced of it, is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature which is such a beautiful way to put it, that Christ hauntedness of the community that she's in, that it is this thing that's lingering in the back of people's minds, even when they're not really sure what to do with it. She has another quote, and I'm sorry, I don't have it written down, um, but it's of kind of the chasing after this Christ-like figure darting through the woods, and then suddenly when you, upon catching him, or rather you discover he catches you, and then it's over because you're 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 lost in, in the the wildness of the the zealousy. Um, so mm. there's the, um, there's the, she has that ability to combine what what I think a lot of us, especially in the very like middle class bourgeois perspective, that we're looking at the world and saying, well, you know, religion makes me feel good and I do nice things and I'm kind. And she's always talking about faith in this very disturbing and uncomfortable way, but saying that that's actually how we should be interacting with it. And so um, in some ways, she's a little like Chesterton in the way she flips things on their head. But she's such a such a vivid writer. And I think the way that she does that is very visually appealing. And so I think it's not that surprising that she has been quite as substantial she has you know she casts her own shadow over modern filmmaking and I, I, as I recall I think they actually made some films of her books in when they were written I believe she there was a tv version of a good man is hard to find which I don't think she thought overly highly of although I think she had to present it as well and she hated seeing herself on television but <laughs> that I think instantly it was the type of thing that people wanted to see presented visually. And so it's sort of not surprising to me that she has this influence, this shadow that she casts over a lot of filmmakers and especially ones that are sort of very notorious for their use of violence because she uses violence to such effect and it's very deliberate. And we're going to come back to it later in the the episode to talk about why the violence is important. But she... It like she absolutely uses violence as the means to bring about the moment of grace and redemption in her stories, which, like I said, I think is such a such an interesting 
idea for filmmakers that they kind of latch on to it. So I know she's been explicitly stated as like a, an influence on Quentin Tarantino, on the Coen brothers who have their own kind of shadow in, in Three Billboards Outside Abbey, Missouri. There is almost like a continuation from their own film Fargo with Frances McDormand as the main actress that like this, uh, you know, as this main figure in a sort of violent, quirky film. Um, so yeah, the Coen brothers, and she she's very explicitly referenced in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. The film almost starts, there's like a, a very short sequence of shots of the, the, the billboards in question, empty and derelict. And then almost the first shot after that is of this character, Red Welby, who is the advertising agent for the town who owns the billboards which are then put in play we're, we're, we're going to give a summary of the story so don't worry but he's holding and reading a copy of a good man is hard to find so the film absolutely begins with this framing that you're watching a story that is fundamentally framed by the Flannery O'Connor perspective of the American South of grace of violence of all of these things and so I think that's why it's so interesting to talk about this film and the ways in which it does that and the ways potentially in which it doesn't achieve its aims in terms of if you're looking at it from a Flannery O'Connor perspective uh, that yeah that it has it's uh, you know forthright stating we're going to be talking about grace and redemption and violence at the very start of this which is an interesting premise for what is essentially a modern secular film yes before we get into the discussion fully, I suppose the first thing to do is just set up a little bit about Martin McDonough, who is the the kind of creator of this film. And he's a British-Irish playwright. He's a screenwriter and producer, and he's born in London. But he has written a series of plays that are based in Ireland uh, that have been very critically acclaimed. There's The Beauty Queen of Lenane, there's The Cripple of Inish Man. There's, there's more than that in the series. There's quite a few of them. Uh, and he's also dire directed a series of dark comedy films, uh, two of which starring Irish actor Colin Farrell. The first one was In Bruges and the second one was Seven Psychopaths. And then this is kind of his third big film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So he's quite interesting in that he comes from um, a Catholic background. He is a lapsed Catholic and he has what me and Michael will very easily identify from our Irish experiences, a quite antagonistic uh, approach to the church from this lapsed Catholic background. It is quite uh, recognisable in Irish society, at least. Uh, and in the film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, he has this, it's a very powerful moment, but it is, I would say, somewhat out of place where uh, a Catholic priest is talking to the main character and she gets a monologue kind of dressing him down about the sex abuse scandals in the church. And, you know, it's, I think there was even a quote where Martin McDonough said, oh, it was an opportunity to throw another institution on the, under the bus because the film is a lot about the kind of corruption in the police force. So it was like, well, here's another thing I want to complain about. And yet at the same time, I think he is still wrestling with it. Like that Christ haunted is something that's relevant to him. And he, he, his film in Bruges has an important plot point about confession and he 
it's interesting that he, you know, in some ways he just can't let it go even when he's railing against it. It's not something he feels like he can just move past. It is always kind of lingering in his work. And in some ways I find it's kind of similar. His long-term girlfriend, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, is famous for creating Fleabag and that had in its last season, which I haven't seen, but I do know a lot about, which is the the, the hot priest as the uh, the moral conflict of that season and this sort of, um, in some ways, quite endearing view of Catholicism in that in that season, but probably more importantly, Martin's brother John Michael McDonough was the one who directed Calvary, and who he said that that was an attempt to tell a good story about a priest to go with a, a, to go along with all of the bad ones. So it's kind of interesting that there is a sense of it, Catholicism being this backdrop around a lot of the creative works hanging around him, and obviously you can't just say just because his brother feels one way, he feels the same way. Um, you know, even Michael and I don't have the same opinion <laughs> on everything. Uh, but yeah, so it, it is kind of an interesting element to it. So I think maybe, Michael, you're going to introduce the film a little bit to to us if you haven't seen it or um, if you just need a reminder, it came out a couple of years ago. And there will be mild spoilers. We will try and avoid some of the, the major sort of plot twisty bits in it, but... Uh, there's not really that much. It's it's not necessarily like a plot twist kind of film, so it's worth explaining. Yes. So, in the fictional town of Ebbing, Missouri, Mildred Hayes is grieving over the rape and murder of her teenage daughter Angela seven months earlier. Angry over the lack of progress in the investigation, Mildred rents three disused billboards near her home and posts on them, raped while dying and still no arrests. How come, Chief Willoughby? The billboards upset many people, including Chief Willoughby and the racist alcoholic police officer, Jason Dixon. These billboards act as a catalyst for the spate of action and violence across the town. We see Mildred's continual battle with her own grief and her desire for justice. But the character with the most development across the film is Dixon, who undergoes trials, a changing perspective and potentially a shot at some kind of redemption. Mm, so yeah that's our introduction to the story as you can see Michael pointed out to me before this that you know we are telling you where the characters end up but we we are going to skip some of the beats that are maybe the more unexpected beats in the story but yeah that this trajectory of redemption is really important to the way that we're discussing this this film I think it was a really highly acclaimed film it sort of came out I think it was quite a box office success we certainly saw it in the cinema. Yes. And there were, no, there was a good hype. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it was kind of highly anticipated. And it got a lot of awards. And uh, the main characters were all nominated and then won their respective categories. I think actually uh, Woody Harrelson, who plays Chief Willoughby, was up against Sam Rockwell, who plays Jason Dixon. So only one of them could win that. But um, Sam Rockwell and Frances McDormand both won the Oscar for their respective roles. Uh, but it wasn't without controversy. I think it came at a time where there was a lot of discussion and there continues to be a lot of discussion about the portrayal of people of colour in films. And there was people who felt kind of uncomfortable with it because the main trajectory of the story is about this racist cop who gets a kind of hero story. And there was a sense of that not being maybe the story that people wanted to hear at that moment. And there is a, a, 
I, I would say a sense of the the black characters in the story having a kind of sideline. They do exist, but they are very much not what the story is about. <laughs> they don't they don't get their own hero moment. Yeah, a lot of the the racism is is off off scene. So mm-hmm. in the sense that it's it's very much present in the sense that it's referenced, but we don't. Uh, see an awful lot of it happening so for example a black woman is arrested but none of that arrest is ever seen we just simply know that she was she it, we were introduced to her we're then told that she's arrested and mm. then we are later reintroduced to her after she's released from from prison and wrongfully imprisoned at that yeah so. absolutely that's that's exactly it so we know it's happening it's just not happening in front of us and i think there is a sense in which if you're going to bring up racism in your story that it's kind of you might want to actually make sure that you really tell that story as opposed to just I, I think what he is doing well is just showing how ubiquitous it is in that in that particular context or that in in certain situations like that I think from my own perspective and in terms of talking about it on the podcast I always feel like when I'm coming up to these uh, discussions that you know as an Irish person I'm white I don't have a lot of experience with this. It's not something like, you know, the experience of racism in the American South is not something that I have any kind of great shakes about. But equally, I think it's maybe kind of telling that Martin McDonough, who created the film, is also from a similar kind of, not totally the same perspective as me, but in a kind of similar space. And so it almost feels like maybe he just wasn't quite equipped to tell that kind of story that he didn't quite know what he was getting into when he was taking it on and in the same way like I said he has this scene with this catholic priest and I did look it up Missouri has a population of about 16% catholics which isn't nothing that is like a notable portion of the population but equally like at one point the priest says I've had you know dozens of people have come up to me and told me that they're not they don't agree with your billboards Mildred and you're kind of like this is a very small town in rural Missouri how many Catholics do you have it just feels a little bit like he was writing from a different point of view and putting it kind of into the American South. Um, I think it was funny. I saw one uh, description which said that maybe the film would have worked better if it was called Three Billboards Outside Kilkenny, which is actually where me and Michael are from. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and and too, I suppose, the, the defence there, while it, it does seem maybe more like an Irish setting set in the, the Midwest, having it in that location it, it adds to the isolation because I think that's one of the things that the, the film deals with grief uh, with the Mildred's loss of her daughter. And she very much creates this cloak of being isolated and keeping people away from her. And so when you see this town, like it, the billboards are on a kind of a dirt track, really, um, to the motorway, which bypasses the, the town. So it kind of suggests and, and says, who's going to see these these billboards? Mm. So it suggests that, you know, it, it's a bypass. So all the traffic, it, nobody comes to this town. It's a backwater, it's effectively. And what's more, the pe- townspeople themselves don't want to connect with the rest of the world. It's a disused road that they go down. Um, so and this, I think that was kind of his, his purpose for writing. And then as well, alluding to uh, the Flannery O'Connor, the kind of some of the, the inspiration for telling this really raw, gritty, grotesque story. That's the, the reason for setting it. And then, as you said, he, he didn't feel well equipped for how to, to write with about race relations uh, and so kind of leaves that happening off set. Though I suppose again in, in some kind of defence as well, 
some of that in the example that I've given whereby you have the, the black woman being wrongfully arrested um, that is thrown at Mildred as a, an unexpected surprise whereby mm. she, she's kind of blindsided with that and so it kind of alludes to you know that the audience is also was kind of while well, we are expecting something bad to have happened that's the the reveal so again it kind of it's, yeah. it, it, it utilizes oh, an awareness of where he's weak and then trying to incorporate that into the storytelling and so that it actually makes it kind of a positive or plausible uh, narrative. Yeah, yeah. And I think for our perspective, we really enjoyed the film. I, I think it is just worth bringing up that some people did find that to be an issue, which I think is is a legitimate reading of the film. Absolutely. When you raise something up into like, you know, and as Mildred constantly reboots the release as being racist and, and, and torturing black people, and we actually get very little evi- first-hand evidence for the, the evidence. Yeah, I think even the Chief Willoughby kind of references it, or or even the, the racist character, uh, Jason Dixon, kind of essentially admits to it himself. So it, it, it's not so much a question of whether it is happening, it's just that we're, we're not quite seeing it in front of us. And I think it's interesting, like we're saying, about the way that... Flannery O'Connor approaches it because she has her own critics in terms of how she deals with race although I think for the most part I think a lot of people really reckon with the fact that she's writing characters that are real characters and that includes black characters she doesn't just use them as kind of symbols or you know I think a lot of the times they were in that era especially from white writers they were reduced down to stereotypes I have a a quote here from uh, the Hilton Owls who wrote in the New Yorker about the ways that O'Connor's work confronted and confounded the norms of her readers, that they were not symbols defined in opposition to whiteness. They were living people who were physically, at least on the periphery of O'Connor's own world. She didn't use them as vessels for sympathy or scorn. She simply and complexly drew from life. And that life was often quite a racist society. And so it's it's interesting trying to draw out her own perspectives and what she's writing about and trying to render realistically. But it's certainly nuanced. But I think the point is, is though, at the very least, she's writing from within that society. And whereas, as we pointed out, McDonough's maybe standing outside that. But like you said, Michael, that... I think what's important is is that he he is very explicitly trying to write a Flannery O'Connor story. And so it has to be set in the American South for that to happen. Like, I just don't think you can really write such an obviously Flannery O'Connor story. You could maybe take her principles and apply them somewhere else. But if you're trying to visually communicate that you're telling a Flannery O'Connor story, the absolute number one thing you have to do is set it in the American South. (laughs) So with all of that preamble, I think maybe we should turn to (laughs) that lengthy preamble. I think we should turn to the actual themes and what makes us kind of interested in this story. And for me, the two main characters are Mildred Hayes, this grieving mother, and uh, Jason Dixon, this... Uh, buffoonish cop who then gets a kind of shot at redemption. Um, But if we're looking at Mildred, I would say her primary motivation, and it's quite a, in some ways, like a biblical motivation, is this question of justice, that she's really searching for justice. And she's acting out a lot in, in quite explicitly in violence as the movie goes on, because she's looking for earthly justice. And while absolutely we would agree that, uh, you know, our institutions of justice are there 
to enact as much justice on earth as we can and seek out those who have perpetrated awful crimes such as the one that her her daughter suffered there is a sense that she's coming up against a brick wall and she doesn't really know what to do about it because she's she doesn't have the ability to hope for a sense of divine justice that even if she fails in this life to bring about justice for her daughter that there will be some kind of justice like at one point she she sees a deer that kind of comes towards her as she's um, actually tending some flowers around these billboards that she's bought and she's talking to this deer and she says that she sort of starts giving a reflection on her perspective of the world and she says that is it just that there ain't no god and the whole world's empty and it doesn't matter what we do to each other i sure hope not but she's really stuck at that i sure hope not that she she can't quite bring herself to believe in there being more and so she really has to seek out justice yes so i think kind of with that i sure hope not well she says it and she, it's all but words in a sense mm. that um, everything that she does is is dependent on and and we see this kind of uh, escalate and build whereby the billboards start to mean more and more to her than, than actually even achieving the justice that's that's being sought well that maybe not to the extent of the justice that's being sought but even when the the billboards ends have been met in the sense that they have been brought awareness of this this crime to the the, the public at large the police have relaunched a kind of a, a renewed investigation into the piece um even still she she cares for these billboards it's almost like headstones for her or kind of mm. that that imagery of, of her bringing flowers and, and plotting them underneath the, the billboards she, she's kind of cultivating this things and hoping that something good will come from it even though everything that that has actually been spurred from these billboards has been conflict and and negative violence yeah that's uh, that's absolutely right you're so right there and that yeah, they kind of become like a totem for her as she's on this quest that if she can just keep these billboards going for long enough, something good will happen. She's like clinging to that. And, you know, it's interesting because the film definitely portrays the police force as being broken or ineffective that like you know you see the people that are that is it's comprised of I don't really think you would have a lot of confidence in them and yet when Chief Willoughby comes to her and kind of asks her why she's set up these billboards specifically accusing him you know how come Chief Willoughby like the buck stops with him and he gives her the list of things that they have done and that you know on some level there is a sense that they did do their job. There just wasn't a lot to go on. There weren't any witnesses. The last person to see her daughter alive was her mother, Mildred. And they have DNA, but they have no one to check it against. And so, you know, there's just... there. They have reached a dead end. It wasn't necessarily that they... I think you can always feel that, like, if you could take it on as personally as, as a mother, that they would find more. But on some level, they have just tried and reached a dead end that there isn't anything more to do. And I think there's there's another point there whereby that's not enough for Mildred. And, and for her, every man is guilty pretty much until that she is found the murderer of her daughter, whereby she says um, that she would have every man um, DNA profiled at birth. Mm. And that, you know, so that 
if such a case ever arose that we'd be able to to compare and contrast it so yeah uh, this view of, of every man is guilty until uh, and and has the potential to be guilty mm-hmm. um uh, and that's where she trying to sate that that desire for justice that we need to get around up everybody and get them tested so that we can get an answer to this yeah absolutely yeah the the guilty until proven innocent and we will hold this this over your head for your entire life and you know you can absolutely sympathize with her it's such a horrific story and you know it's not beyond the realms of believability this is sadly the story of people in the world and of many people in fact but that i think it is this absolutely blistering quest for justice it like it it eviscerates all of her other virtues in some ways like we me and michael have talked a lot about how she has another son in the in the film and she he's so clearly struggling and so clearly neglected at least emotionally by her because she's on this quest for vengeance and even uh, opposite in the sense that the, the small bit of sanity that he does get from kind of like trying to lose himself at school and stuff like that suddenly he can't even do that whereby and um, the whole town is against her and against these billboards and, and as he says uh, in the film like you know the th- 13 seconds that he's not uh, thinking about what happened to his, his sister um, he she stuck up signposts to remind him about mm. things and even then we had learned that he had tried to keep the details of her her final moments hidden from himself like he did, like she had given him the, the the death report and he hadn't read it and then she goes and posts it up on the the, the billboard so that the whole town knows and, and subsequently he knows as well yeah yeah and it, it's interesting how it does the film kind of does have a slightly i don't know ambivalent approach to the use of violence like is it justified or is it not justified it kind of in some way steps back and doesn't take a position but i thought it was interesting like at one point she's really reached a dead end and she's sitting on the edge of her bed in her nightgown and her fluffy bunny slippers and she starts like wiggling her toes and speaking through them and she essentially has the the bunny say what should we do crucify them you know that like this (laughs) this chant that we have from our easter liturgy is spoken through the words of her her fluffy bunny uh, slippers that yeah that, that there's this kind of deeply comic but also dark portrayal of how how we can't enact her own justice like she's trying so hard and she's doing everything she can to bring up some modicum of justice in this world and we just it's interesting from a catholic perspective we just have to at some point let go and say that pure justice will not be possible in this world and that we can hope for some kind of justice but not full justice um, yeah, I think you said there that, um, you know, the, the film projects uh, maybe kind of a blank perspective on violence or kind of doesn't come down one way or the other. I would actually say that it probably has nearly a pro appeal of violence. Um, mm. Definitely when we see Mildred extracting her violence on others, it can be very cathartic in the sense that we can see her struggle. We know the the, the horrors that she's had to endure and what her daughter had to endure. And uh, and so, kind of getting this release of uh, of endorphins and, and you know at this kind of getting back at the the system that seems to be wanting to close in around them and say no, shut up and uh, you know 
and grieve, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> um, grieve quietly. quietly yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we, we see that kind of very clearly in kind of things like after the billboards go up, um, there's a, one of the, the townspeople, the dentist, is very vocal against her. And when she goes to visit the dentist, he then tries to, to turn the drill on her and she manages to overcome him and, and drill a hole in him in return. And that that scene is very much, well, very intense, where we first of all think she's helpless in a dentist's chair and, and kind of what is he going to do to try and things. And then when he, she's able to, to turn the drill on him, it's uh, we get that release and it's like, yeah, you go, girl. <laughs> uh, uh, but then, uh, as I said, so, so we're kind of engaging in this violence and we starting to invest more and more in the, the story and in the billboards ourselves. We are drawn on and spurred to, yes, I would totally do that same action or that, that, that violence so much so that it, it rises to a climax. And then I suppose kind of the climax is, is linked with our other character of Dixon. But from that point on, we then start to see more and more of the consequences of that violence and of the collateral damage that, that then is, is reaped. Uh, and that's when we start to pull away. And while there is maybe some cathartic, it, it's never as clear as it's more, we can never fully shake the or, or excuse the rationale for the, the violence. Yeah, it does start to devolve and she starts to get less directed in what she's doing and ultimately we find out that some of the things she she thinks that she has this big act of violence where she essentially burns down a building in retaliation against someone burning down her billboards and it turns out she got it wrong as to who burned down the billboards you know things like that that she she's not even aiming in the right direction anymore i have a quote here from from a, a website called Transpositions, which had quite a good article on on hope in in the film. And, and the article says, the billboards proved to be an empty symbol, inspiring outrage and conversation, but accomplishing nothing of value. And I think that's a kind of interesting point to jump off of, which is that, you know, they do inspire some action. And actually, we're about to look to Dixon, and in some ways he gets this, redemptive arc but it, it only kind of happens because because she starts on this road or maybe not like there's the this character of, of the chief bill willoughby who has this kind of um, emotional role in the film and maybe it's just coming from him or like it, it, it it's not totally clear where the sparks of his redemptive action comes from but the billboards in some ways also totally failed that they're not actually going to achieve anything except make Mildred more of an outcast than she is and and to to vent her spleen. Yes, I, I think we're, I suppose it, it depends on who you, this wonderful question of like, is there a God or whatever? But um, mm-hmm. from from what the film lays out, nothing good comes from the, the billboards. Mm. It, it, it just simply um, catalyzes violence and anger. And as you said, kind of ostracizes Mildred from the rest of the community. However, even in that dire moment and when when all of the despite because it was good that she she wanted good to come from them you know the way mm. even though it may not have been a, a good action even in that 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 calamity of situations grace acts and from that it can interweave and, and kind of as i said bring dixon to this point of potential redemption despite the the negative consequences are there or maybe even as you were saying kind of because of the 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 negative consequences of being catalyzed by those billboards 
Yeah, yes. and I think the film also somewhat hints that she is wrestling with moments of grace in her own life, that she may be offered graces, that she is to a certain extent responding to, but also to a certain extent shutting down in her in her quest. Like there was a really great article from Word on Fire by Father Damien Ferenc, where he really highlights how there's actually a moment in the film, which is almost like a mirror image of a moment in Flannery O'Connor's probably her most famous story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is about a family that goes on a road trip and is then, uh, they hear stories about this 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 serial killer character called the misfit and eventually they, they run into him and have this fatal encounter. But it's told through the perspective of this grandmother who's very fussy and all up in her own thoughts and is kind of very self-preoccupied. And then it's only at the end when she has a gun in her face that she actually really encounters the humanity of another person. It's just that that person happens to be the man holding a gun to her face. And so O'Connor is kind of suggesting that this terrible thing is actually the only thing that's actually going to break through this old woman's self-preoccupation. And so the the moment that, that Father Damien Ferenc pulls out for his article is that Mildred is having this heated argument with Chief Willoughby and he has a, a, an illness which everyone kind of knows about but isn't really talking about. And so as they're talking, he suddenly ha- like violently coughs blood in her face. And it like the acting is so good because she instantly like there's no beat between her having this kind of moment of shock and her instantly responding with love and compassion and worry that like she she instantly wants to mother him for the man that she's called out on these billboards as responsible for not resting arresting anyone for her daughter's death. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just read out a quote from it here. Willoughby sprays blood all over her face. Mildred immediately gets up from her chair and embraces Willoughby and calls him my baby. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that this scene was inspired by McNunna's reading of A Good Man is Hard to Find, specifically the scene where the grandmother reaches out to the misfit while saying, Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. In both narratives, it is a moment of grace when the other is recognised as a fellow human being and not merely as a competitor. In the three billboards, it's our first inclination that there's something beyond grief and anger for Mildred and for all who are grieving. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't picked up on that my baby line. Exactly. It's an incredible <laughs> slip, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it just makes so much sense there. Um, yeah. And so there's these occasional moments where you actually see what feels like the true Mildred breaking through, but she just can't let it go and in some ways I, I don't necessarily know what she's supposed to do because because she has a right to fight for her justice but she is lashing out in these progressively more violent ways and trying to cast particular people in the role of like you said that that Willoughby is responsible because he is the chief and you know there is a logic to it he is the chief of police it is his problem but at the same point like we said it isn't like it isn't that they haven't tried at the same point, and I think it is interesting that she knows he's very ill and potentially dying, and she kind of says that that's no excuse. And I sort of I'm I'm kind of on her side in that respect that you can't just say, oh well he's having a hard time, so you can't expect him to do his job. That like 
there is a sense that you are in the role of the an inactor of justice and you are the person that I have to appeal to. And as much as I might sympathise with you that this is still who I'm asking for, but it's almost because the real person she wants to ask for is God and she can only go so far up the chain until she hits the hit chief of police and she doesn't know who to go above that, you know? <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> and yeah, just to go back to that article on the transpositions on hope, I think he makes a really good point, which is that that inability to reach for God is a more unsettling tone to the... or. And I, actually, I, it's, Flannery's stories are so unsettling, I almost don't want to say that, but it is a less morally clear tone for the film. So the article says, O'Connor's Catholicism offers one answer to the question of why. Suffering has greater significance beyond the individual. O'Connor sees and portrays a world full of broken people longing for the redemption that Christ offers. As a lapsed Catholic, McDonough offers a less comforting, though perhaps more relatable answer. People often suffer for no reason at all, and their only real recourse is more violence. When given clarity through tragedy, Mildred Hayes sees nothing but emptiness. If O'Connor portrays a Christ-haunted South, McDonough provides a South haunted by a quickly fading fiction of meaning. One can almost feel McDonough's personal uncertainty bleed through the words of Mildred Hayes. Is this the way the world truly is? I hope not. Yeah, I, I think that's a bit too critical or in sense that maybe kind of too straight cut in the sense that his world doesn't have any reference to God. For mm. me, when I was watching it, like I could see the hand of God moving mm. in the, through the every scene. Or not every scene, but looking back, you can see where the, the, the movements of grace uh, and uh, and how it, it's able to, to slip between all these very harsh defences or... Mm. And uh, and I think where, where what O'Connor does is that while he's not like sorry he's not um, McDonough Mc isn't not like, not like O'Connor whereby he doesn't explicitly call upon God or he doesn't directly allude to it he presents a blank canvas so that the, his audience brings whatever is with them you know it says for me with my Catholicism I can then view it and I can see it whereas I think for those and we've seen it in the criticisms that where they don't actually have that kind of ability to read the scenarios they struggle very much with um, trying to understand what's happened on screen. And I think it's also worth pointing out, I think you're absolutely right. And in some ways, I'd say a lot of people who don't know who Flannery O'Connor is, if they read her work, like you said, you, you felt that she was more critical of religion. Because when we say that McDonough is not being explicit in the way that he appeals to Christ, that almost suggests that Flannery O'Connor's books are always like, and then God intervened and grace happened. And they're not like that at all. It's just that when you know that she's a Catholic, when you read it, you go, ah, I know what's happening there. And so in some ways, you're kind of reading back into something the wrong way, which is to say that we know exactly what McDonough was trying to say and, and reading it that way. I kind of agree with you. And because also a lot of his imagery is very much of that classic type like there's so much purging fire in this film that <laughs> there are so many fires and baptisms by fire and all of these like very I, I i would say on the on the nose except that they don't feel like really obvious when you're watching it like oh here comes the fire imagery but when you're taking the movie seriously and thinking about it it suddenly comes up again and again oh yeah there was that moment where everything was on fire and a character changed 
that's actually you know nearly beat for beat i've re- recently just re-listened to flannery o'connor's um, the violent barrett away and um like that in all these key moments that she has the main character burn stuff down and it's like i was like this is three billboards <laughs> <laughs> and like that just kind of the, this imagery of fire is very much intertwined between both both flannery's own works and um and in the, the three billboards mm, yeah uh, I think it was in the Word on Fire article they also referenced like the three billboards being a little like the three crosses on Calvary that yeah there, there's or there's at the very least it's kind of it's telling that it's three billboards that this theologically significant number but even like uh, explicitly in the film we are told that this all happens at Easter um, you have Willoughby interrupted his, his Easter meal with the news that these billboards have gone up yeah, and as I said, the movie opens with this shot of Red Welby, the advertising agent, reading The Good Man is Hard to Find. And it's the first kind of scene with dialogue is then Mildred comes into the room and says, I want to rent these three billboards, and has a very funny exchange about what she can and can't say on the billboards. <laughs> but she then asks, okay, if I pay for it now, when will they be up? And he goes, uh, two weeks' time, so that'll be Easter Sunday. And she goes that's perfect that there's this really explicit sense that this is happening at easter we want you to know this is happening at this easter. is going to be her resurrection or she's going to, to kind of have her hope mm-hmm. fulfilled yeah absolutely and so in, ter- in terms of talking about trials by fire and redemption we should maybe turn to the character of jason dixon who is this i will say he's a very unlikable character he's a racist cop i will say i'm a huge sam rockwell fan so when he comes on screen i know he's a terrible person but i already instinctively kind of like him well i hadn't actually seen much of his previous work well i will say one sec michael i'm about to because i forgot to tell you this earlier you have seen one film that you really like with him in it and it is galaxy quest oh amazing (laughs) (laughs) i love his previous work but but when you were saying earlier actually of uh, kind of he was up against um buddy harris for best uh, supporting actor um, I was like, oh no, he should have got it. <laughs> uh, but because he really does make himself so endearing. You know, well, first for so repellent and so mm. things, but then his his acting and his, his as we are brought along the journey with him, I think we're also redeemed. Whereby the kind mm. of when we see the the bad elements in him that could be reflected in us, we too then can also undergo this this moment of grace. Yeah, he's he is a really interesting character he's uh, like i just think sam rockwell is a great actor i think it was in the last episode of the podcast that i recommended a film he's currently in called see how they run but he yeah he's just so compelling and interesting but he takes so the character is in some ways you're kind of obvious corrupt lazy racist cop but he's also they like they always weave more nuance to through him he is quite childish he's sitting at his desk reading like comic books and he is very obvious at least to me a character in search of a father that he wants he he feels like a kid stuck in his childish ways and yet he listens to classical music yeah yeah he, he there are nuances to it yeah and i love that about it again you don't just simply have just one shade of this is the racist cop no you have you know, yes, he has father issues. Yes, he has a kind of a very controlling mother. 
you have this kind of desire for classical music you've got the comic books, books the kind of escapism, escapism. of that yeah uh, and and all of this kind of combines into this very simplistic and yet complex character definitely uh, and i think it's interesting how the film really does show how much of his kind of racist ideas come from his mother and how he's not even particularly comfortable with his mother and what she thinks and he lives with her still and it's it's kind of a difficult relationship that they have and yeah that he isn't just you know this this character that comes out of an evil cloud and is evil you know that he's a lot more human than that and he's so funny in it as well yeah we learned that a lot of the the, the torturing that he does is actually on the advice of his mother as mm. well that, um, yeah yeah absolutely that she is this really um kind of malign influence on him and and yet he's quite tender with her as well which is it's yeah he, like it's just a much better portrayal of a character than just saying he has one attribute and that's that's the only thing of interest about him and so as the story goes on he's inspired by some of the words of chief willoughby and various actions to yearn to do some good in the world he has this he gets caught in a massive fire he actually saves the file from of of angela hayes's murder like the notes and all the 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 kind of the bundle of papers he saves that from a fire which is his sacrifice as i said his own life nearly to to get the he's literally on fire and yet he's protecting the pages yeah yeah, which I think is really yeah, it's 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 a really touching moment, and so this this comes at a at, at a crisis point because it comes right after him doing the most heinous act, and I think this act that we're going to say is whereby he throws a person out a window, and you are just absolutely this person has done nothing of of any harm directly to him mm-hmm. and things. He may have had some hand in events, but he definitely was not deserving of this this uh, brutal very violent outburst and uh, and yet and it's at that point that when all the violence that I've kind of spoken about where we were maybe making excuses for the the Mildred's violent outbursts and and that there was cathartic with it we're just ripped of any sort of excuse and we just realize that oh no wait this has gone way too far and real lives are seriously being maimed in this uh, yeah. action and that then brings to the kind of the moment of, of of grace for Dixon whereby he gets we said he's, he was lit on fire and, and so he, he's, he's severely burnt and head to toe in bandages and he's wheeled into um, the recovery ward as the same man who he's thrown out the window and this amazing scene as tears start to flow down his eyes and he realizes who he's sharing, who he is sharing the ward with, and and then the the guy is who was thrown out the window is later to, to cop on as to who this other person is. Yeah, he doesn't recognize him through the bandages because it's and, and so we suddenly realize, oh wait, he is now completely in control of the situation. Like he can do whatever he wants to this man in bandages, the the burnt victim, the his possi- perpetrator. perpetrator. Yeah. And uh, and he cho- chooses to give him mercy, and not only that, but starts to serve him, whereby he offers him orange juice to drink, mm. and and makes it as easy as possible for him to 
to, to drink and to soothe him. And just that, you can see him just trying to accept that mercy mm. is just one of the most powerful scenes in cinema that I've ever seen. The things Yeah, that. I really love it. I agree. It's such a, it, it, like, I love the movie for the fact that it, the story brings you to that point where you get to see that moment of, of grace. Like you said, that it's not just mercy, that he forgives him, but that he immediately serves him and serves him through both emotional and physical pain. Like this man who he's put in the hospital is still pretty severely. Oh, the both of them are, <laughs> are like mummies <laughs> with the amount of bandages that are, are decorating them. Yeah, absolutely. And yet he staggers over and gives him this glass of orange juice and you can hear him panting through the pain of like knowing that this is the person who's hurt him. And yet Grace absolutely breaks through for me like I just think it's such a beautiful moment and I think that there's like it's such a Flannery O'Connor moment to me like I just think that moment is a really fantastic synthesizing of what she tries to do in her stories and you know I think there are maybe other parts that I think maybe are less successful in that Flannery O'Connor line in the film but this scene to me and the way that it builds up to this scene is so strong in the way that it manages to utilize what Flannery O'Connor was always trying to do with Grace in her stories. It's the essence of her her characters, and, and she has a, a wonderful passage uh, describing what what makes her characters work. I often ask myself what makes a story work, and what makes it hold up as a story, and I have decided that it's probably some action, some gesture of a character that is unlike any other in the story. One which indicates where the real heart of the story lies. This would have to be an action or a gesture which was totally right and totally unexpected. It would have to be one that was both in character and beyond character. It would have to suggest both the world and eternity. The action or gesture I'm talking about would have to be on the level which has to do with the divine life and our participation in it. It would be a gesture that transcends any neat allegory that might have been intended or any pat moral category a reader could make. It would be a gesture which somehow made contact with mystery. Mm, It's so good. She writes so eloquently. And I I often say this, that if you're interested in Flannery O'Connor and you don't know where to start, I would say maybe some of her short stories, but almost as quickly as possible, try and get to some of her her non-fiction writing, her reflections and her letters and her essays, just because in some ways it is hard for us to access exactly what she's doing in her stories. And when you start placing them within her very specific um, viewpoint, which is so well articulated and so thought out that uh, all starts falling into place. And I think this description here works so perfectly for a movie that's made, you know, half a century later and is trying to access the same thing that she's talking about there. And I think it's interesting that in some ways for me and and Michael, like we both feel that it was such an obvious moment of grace and divine grace, because I think there is a way to view the, the film as not quite reaching that level because there's a sort of ambiguity or a shaking off of the possibility of God, that there is kind of 
um, a question as to whether the film actually kind of needs to be a bit more explicitly Christian in order to work. Because, like I said, I think if you're going on it with the Flannery O'Connor view, you see it immediately. But maybe for people, you know, I would say the vast majority of our audience won't have seen the split second at the start that's where someone's reading a good man is hard to find and if even if they had they might know what that indicates you know there is a sense that maybe there was more of a, a fully developed christ even just christ haunted element to the story well i think where some of it comes into is that the criticism is that as i said here we we have um dixon's metamorphosis or kind of redemption is that he sees the victim that he threw out the window and, and is mm. able to receive mercy from him. And because prior to this, we've been he's been painted as a racist, and very strongly so, and is a racist. But because the redemption didn't come from his, his racist actions, there is a kind of a, well, that hasn't been addressed. Yeah. And, uh, and I can see where, kind of from wanting to balance the book's perspective, you might think that it would need to be mm-hmm. addressed and maybe it does still need to be. But from what the, the movie portrays and I think from our understanding of, of God and grace, we aren't worthy of God's grace. So no matter of all the bad things that we've done, as long as we start to open the door to it, the rest is just washed away in, in mm. the outpouring of of redemption and, and of, of forgiveness. Yeah, and I think that's the question. Like if you're seeing this from a human point of view, redemption has to be earned and it kind of has to be earned on all fronts like you were saying that you can't just have it in one direction and like I said that doesn't mean from a religious point of view just because you've forgiven someone in one direction doesn't mean it's okay for you to be a racist but it's more just the idea that you're opening yourself up to all of those things to be able to have that perspective and also that that we can also hope that God will see our efforts in one direction and grant us mercy in the in the areas that we may have failed to change and respond to his grace that none of us can ever be fully redeemed on this earth that there will always be things that we have blind spots for or failings that we constantly fall into or you know just things that we're not seeing about ourselves and we do have to at least on some level rely on grace and that doesn't mean that our sins are excusable in some ways the point is is that Christ came to us while we were still sinners. They are sins. We are supposed to to be better than them. But that divine grace can't be earned in the way that human redemption has to be. That on earth we have to earn our, our reconciliation with the world. But divine grace kind of supersedes all of that and it can't be earned and we can't we can't put boundaries on it in the same way. And I think The point about Dixon that is important to keep in mind is that it's almost that he has to be vile enough for it to be a moment of worthy of divine grace, to see the extent to which Christ offers grace, that like the depths of humanity that he reaches out to. And I think there's this amazing, we've quoted her a lot, but we will continue to quote her, um, this unbelievable quote from Flannery O'Connor, which I think is so important, where she says, there is something in us as storytellers and listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be 
offered the chance to be restored. The reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so, but what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. When he reads a novel, he wants either his sense tormented or his spirits raised. He wants to be transported instantly, either to mock damnation or a mock innocence. And what she's getting across there is that black and white view that you were talking about, that like he's either good or he's bad. He either atones for all of his wrongness or he atones for none of it. And I think the film is trying to say something a little bit more nuanced or just that we haven't gotten the full story yet. We're looking at one moment of grace that we hope will be a mustard seed in his life. Absolutely. And I think what she also highlights in that quote is the cost of it, which is why the story needs to be violent. And we had an episode which I didn't actually re-listen to, so I can't quite remember what we had in it. But we had an episode way back at the start of the podcast on violence in films and why, as Catholics, just because a film is violent doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, it can also often be a mechanism for telling a good story. I'm sure the crucifixion is probably the most violent story <laughs> we know anything. Yeah, exactly. Man crucifying God. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, in some ways, Michael, you've just summed it up that why, why do we need violence in stories? But I think Flannery O'Connor is a particularly good person to look to when we're talking about, like, why does this story need to be violent? And she's so good at showing how... It needs to be violent because as a society we've so drifted away from what reality actually is and when she talks about reality it's like the spiritual reality that we have no concept of the measure of our souls and the measure of our actions because we're all in this like you said Michael this cookie cutter homogenized nice respectability and that was 50 years ago or more <laughs> so yeah. like we've moved on even further from the point that Flannery was was commenting on mm. and that it's only something like violence that actually shocks us enough to start thinking about the eschatological things like death and the afterlife what is beyond and what comes from beyond that like we actually need something pretty grotesque and horrible to do that very true And of course, she writes wonderfully about it. She has a quote, which I have here. Our age not only does not have a very sharp eye for the almost imperceptible intrusions of grace, it no longer has much feeling for the nature of the violence which precede and follow them. The devil's greatest while, Baudelaire has said, is to convince us that he does not exist. I suppose the reasons for the use of so much violence in modern fiction will differ with each writer who uses it, but in my own stories I have found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. Their heads are so hard that almost nothing else will work. (laughs) And she also says that violence is a force which can be used for good or evil, and among other things, taken by it is the kingdom of heaven. She has this idea that you have to storm heaven, that it's something hard won, that it doesn't come from just, you know, cruising along nicely with nice respectability, I guess. Absolutely. And to remember that that Jesus himself used violent languages as well, like, you know, the Good Samaritan, you know, beaten and, and on the road, whereby everyone is moving away from him, mm. the, the Levites and the priests, um, these religious men, they, they, they step aside from him, whereas it's the Samaritan that comes up close, gets in with the, the wounds and the messiness of the uh, of life. Mm. And that's where he his 
salvation has been won is engaging in that work. That's such a good point that I hadn't even necessarily associated with, which is how violent so many of the parables are and Mm. that it would have been shocking to his audience as well to hear this story of this man beaten on the side of the road. That that's the point of that story is, is that that's the figure you avert your eyes from because you don't want to see it. Exactly. And that also that in some ways, violence in some capacity is necessary for change. And when I say violence, like even in a small way, you have to kill the parts of yourself that need to be shed in order to grow and change. And it, you know, that can feel like a very quiet, silent thing that happens inside of yourself. But it is, you know, something on a profoundly theological level, a kind of violence of stripping away the sin and stripping away the the crutches that you lean on that hide you from and protect you from encountering Christ. That That change is painful. She talks about that a lot as well. And I think it's so interesting in terms of a modern age because there's so much of modernity which is about coddling us and giving us sort of affirmative messages and uh, yeah that it's about not encountering the truth and so I think it's kind of telling that Three Billboards is so based on advertising like this advertising space like using a space that should be for I don't know selling hair wax or whatever it was that like is now attempting to be used to tell the truth. Um, yeah, and I think that's Flannery summarises that beautifully with uh, her quote on uh, the truth does not change but our ability to stomach it. You mm. know, in the sense that so often we, we, we ignore the truth because it's just unpalatable that it, to look at it and sit with it for a while it just nauseates us and so it's better to, to tell us false tales um, than, than to live with it. Yeah, and I think that's actually really perfect because she has these great quotes about saying that goodness is quite ugly. She says that most of us have learned to be dispassionate about evil, to look it in the face and find as often as not our own grinning reflections with which we do not argue. But good is another matter. Few have stared at that long enough to accept that its face too is grotesque, that in us the good is something under construction. Uh, The modes of evil usually receive worthy expression. The modes of good have to be satisfied with a cliché or a smoothing down that will soften their real look. I think that word cliché is so actually prescient. Like in the film, there's this whole plot point at the end which is about a a cliché that somebody reads on a bookmark, which is anger begets greater anger. And so all of the goodness that, (laughs) that can be said in the film is summed up on this silly bookmark because that's that's kind of all that's left to it whereas the the billboards are trying to express some kind of truth and good and it's it's kind of not quite reaching its its ability and you know the there's that kind of brokenness in terms of uh the modern ability to transmit good like like the the fact that advertising is this kind of modern fixture that is everywhere and that we can't quite utilize for good i think it's not that i, I, I would i would stumble and go as far as say that the the billboards are trying to say mm. uh, truth mm. in that they are definitely a call for help and a call for attention mm-hmm. um and there's nothing wrong there is no you know in the words of truth you know yes she states fact about her daughter's death um, that there hasn't been any arrests 
and it asks the question of mm. the chief why is that so definitely there is no false statement with those statements mm. but it doesn't uh, so often i suppose and this may be from with kind of social media and twitter and so forth we try to reduce down complex issues to bite-sized um, pieces that are, are are kind of catchy or um, clickbaity. That that we, we kind of we lose the essence and the, the the enormity and the complexity that is behind these meanings, and so much so that we only focus on the on the words, and and even then, um, it's so easy then to twist and manipulate them. Yeah, and I think that kind of clickbaitiness is is telling. Like you said, it's about trying to distill things down into something that is easily transmittable and you know that our modern institutions really struggle with this the way that we've constructed society it doesn't lend itself to grotesque and ugly truth or goodness that it has to be this kind of clean polished marketing version that that like this advertising friendly version of truth or this advertising friendly version of even like religion or Christ or anything like that and there's this great line where she's in the film where Mildred is is, is being sarcastic but she says wow when you can't trust the lawyers and the advertising men what the hell's America coming to huh (laughs) it's so cutting and funny and you know that the idea that these are the remnants of justice and truth and and goodness that are left to us but they are the only instruments that she has in the Mm. sense that she can't go to the police, you know, she she knows them to be corrupt and she's forsaken the church, which she has long since not gone to. So so for her, when she's kind of cut off the these kind of sources of what should be support and rightly and wrongfully, you know, the way... Yeah, that, we, that like she has seen actual failures in both of those institutions, that she has been let down by them in very real ways. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so... The only way that she can get her voice across is through kind of the, the the media and the advertising and the and having to go to the lawyers and trying to use them as her weapons, and I think it's kind of telling then that you know she she does use good reasons for kind of using this medium whereby um she says that um the 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 best chance of her getting this case solved is keeping it in the public eye and keeping mm. it alive in that way, uh, and so it is logical it is truth but. Breaking it down into that bite-sized chunk, it just doesn't it doesn't convey the the wealth of emotion. Yeah, I think that's it. And so I think it's also a testament to the need for your own clarity and the need for that that serious moral vision that Flannery O'Connor has, that we do really struggle in this modern age to communicate with truth and clarity. And also to find grace and to experience that kind of redemptive grace that she talks about because it is like everything is set up to try and avoid it as much as possible because it's very uncomfortable. And so I think that's why both of us really liked this movie so much is just because it's so um, interesting in the way that it is actually genuinely trying to look at what does it mean to be redeemed and what does grace look like in this kind of society and I think for both of us we thought it it, for us at least it was successful and I think for even people who see it not as not being as successful as maybe a Flannery O'Connor I think the fact that it is really wrestling with it is very noteworthy and I think there's a lot to get out of it and it's also entertaining I mean I've Mm. watched deep impactful movies and yes you've 
you, you feel gutted afterwards, but it's it's not a pleasant watch and you certainly don't feel like you want to go and go through it again. And mm. um, whereas this with the, the humor, it's very dark humor, but at the same time, it keeps the story rolling along nicely uh, and you're engaged and, and more than happy to kind of go watch again. And in fact, the ending of it, you want to stay longer with these characters because you've grown close to them. You want to kind of see yeah. them whatever happens even though it's a mystery of what happens at the end or how is it going to end you've become their friends in some ways you want to to, to walk with them further along their, their paths their respective paths and hopefully that path is to redemption yeah absolutely and i have to shout out also the music in it is fantastic so it's just and it's beautifully made the the cinematography is great it's just a really well constructed film and we both really liked it so now that we've covered that we like three billboards outside Abbey, Missouri. What else are you enjoying at the moment, Michael? <laughs> um, well, I suppose keeping on kind of the theme of Flannery O'Connor and kind of the intrusiveness of Grace, um, I'm at the moment I'm watching um, Breaking Bad. A little late to the game. Oh, very late to the game. I mean, I, I studied chemistry when I was in college and uh, pretty much everyone's saying, oh, have you seen Breaking Bad yet? And uh, I had uh, never actually watched it. I, I feel like this is exactly like when I did my master's on dragons and, and for my master's in Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies. And literally any the only thing anyone ever asked me was, oh, are you watching Game of Thrones? Which I wasn't. So <laughs> <laughs> you and I had the same experience. Exactly. And I haven't come to the end. I'm only halfway through the, the second season. So I can't say, but so far really enjoying it. Um, of course, again, caveating, it's very much R-rated, lots of heavy drug use, lots of um, violence. Um, and then there's kind of there's even stuff in it that, you know, I, I do question the the legitimacy of the narrative and like how useful it is. Like there's there's um, sex scenes which are clearly introduced just to create a reaction from the audience, etc. So th- it's not by any means a perfect or it's, it's not without nuance. But at the same time, it deals a lot with this kind of themes of of Flannery, whereby you're presented with these grotesque characters and very much from the the get-go, you see the seeds of their own ruin being planted within them and the the various paths of... uh, that, that they're going down and their own demise is being it's in some ways it's kind of Shakespearean tragedy. They're reaping their own rewards. But at the same time, there is that grace that is trying to break through mm. and, and that they never actually fully reduce the characters to just simply good and bad that these characters, and I suppose just for, for your audience don't know, it's, it's about a, a, a chemistry teacher who has uh, been given a diagnosis of terminal cancer and with mounting bills to pay, uh, medical bills particularly, he turns to, to making meth um, to try and subsidise that, uh, the, mm. the medical bills. Um, so like that, it starts off from a kind of a position whereby he is really in a corner. He's very a tragic character in many mm. respects. Um, but then it's these first rumblings of stones of kind of what started out maybe as a, as a necessarily evil. He definitely expires. He's, he's offered chances of, of redemption, of faith, and keeps on spurring it because he wants more and, and his, he's kind of blinded then to his uh, to the kind of the path that he's going or, or just at least not caring about the, the, the ramifications of what he's doing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's definitely one that I, I know people are sort of aghast when I say I haven't seen it. I, I'm sure I will get there at some point. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it does sound fascinating. And since we're on a kind of theme of maybe like 
things you wouldn't necessarily expect from a podcast on beauty and uh, Catholic, Catholic art and all of those things. I'll just be honest, the thing I was enjoying is I went to the Machine Gun Kelly concert yesterday and I had a great time. I referenced this on a podcast before. I totally accept that it's not maybe the most elevated of my particular musical choices, but I had a great time. I loved it. I always think it's so funny. I feel like when people... Uh, you know, if I'm talking to my friends, I feel like from the Catholic point of view, people might be a little bit like, oh, that's not, I guess, wholesome or uplifting enough. And then from my music friends, they might be like, oh, that's that's too basic or that's not, <laughs> that's not <laughs> musically interesting enough. But I had a great time. It was a great gig. It was a big show. And it's just really nice after a couple of years of you know not getting to go to concerts to get to go to one with a whole lot of energy yeah a lot of energy a big crowd scream some great lyrics and uh, have a great time so that's what i was enjoying at the moment i I will note it's uh what we're enjoying at the moment it's not necessarily a recommendation for everyone so (laughs) i'll just be honest about what i'm enjoying at the moment thank you so much for listening and we'll be back again soon with another episode we'll have it slightly halloweeny themed for the season and uh, otherwise you can catch us on twitter i'm at this handle at seeking watson and the podcast is on instagram at at risking enchantment podcast you can also find it on my website uh, rachelsherlock.com where you can sign up for the newsletter to get an email whenever we have a new episode of the podcast and thank you very much for joining me this evening michael oh it's been an absolute pleasure goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.